Hi, TikTok. How are you? Today's topic is on what it takes to effectively represent yourself in a family court case to save thousands of dollars in legal fees, <laughs> which, you know, I love. Like, that's a great thing. So, Julie, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Arizona lawyer Julie LeBenz. I've been a lawyer in Arizona since 2006. I've been a trial lawyer my entire career, and I've worked through or worked in a couple of different jurisdictions throughout Arizona, mostly in rural counties. I'm currently in Yavapai County. I'm owner and founder of LeBenz Law and handle mostly divorce matters. I, I tell people I handle divorce and death and you know, <laughs> I went to these like marketing seminars before and they would teach you all these fancy ways to talk about what you did. And I would try those out and people would look at me and be like, what do you do? And so then I'm just like, I'm a lawyer. I do divorce and death and everybody gets it now. Divorce but, and death. So do you do estate planning and probate? I do. I used to do a lot more of it. Now I just do it here and there. But yeah, when I was in La Paz County, it's one of the biggest retirement communities in Arizona. So I dealt with a lot of contested probate matters, trust litigation, state planning, like a lot of stuff in that arena. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm Billy Tarasio. I am a family law and divorce attorney in Arizona, as well as Julie. I have been out of law school since 2005. I think you were 2006, right? Mm -hmm. So we've been doing this a long time. So Julie and I both own litigation practices, but we also have for a long time, looked for ways to help people represent themselves in court. That has been a passion of mine for many, many, many years since the founding of the firm that is now Modern Law that used to be called Access Legal Services. That was all about increasing access to justice. So it's very fun that Julie and I have now come together to offer the latest iteration on helping people help themselves, which is our platform called Win Without Law School. Do you want to tell them about our platform? Yeah, it's it's something that we've been creating. It's still a work in progress based on the feedback that we're getting from our audience. But the, the real vision behind it is this belief that Billy and I both share, which is that you can effectively represent yourself in court if you have the right tools. Mm -hmm. And with the way the economy is right now, with how lawyers just keep getting more expensive, with how there's so much uncertainty with legal fees. Lawyers charge by the hour. You may have a very litigious person on the other side. And then with this fact that custody cases can go on for you know a decade or longer, gaining this information, knowledge, these skills can literally save you tens of thousands of dollars. I've had a couple of custody cases where the final legal fees were equivalent to a college education. Ooh. And, you know, I really noted that and thought, wow, these two parents could have figured this out and put this money aside, but that wasn't how it worked out. And so finding ways to minimize, minimize legal fees, especially if you're facing a very contentious situation can make a huge difference. Absolutely. And the fact is like many, many, many people represent themselves in family court. They simply have to. If you've got a case that's going on forever and ever, it's almost impossible to afford it. And then there's sometimes when it doesn't even make sense. Like if you're enforcing child support, it's simple enough that you don't need to spend the money to hire a lawyer to enforce things like child support. So having 
and there's a lot of information out there, but nothing really geared towards how to actually represent yourself in court. Now, today we're going to talk about that, but we also recently recorded a, a course on trial skills, teaching people how to do everything from direct examination to cross-examination to opening statements to pretrial statements. And you all can access that for free on our site, winwithoutlawschool.com. Go ahead and register there. The paid portion will come when you want to practice your skills because the real value is in practicing and in getting feedback. And that is something that are that we are offering through Win Without Law School. But even if you just want the information and the course, you can access that for free at winwithoutlawschool.com. Yeah, we're going to have more and more free resources and paid for resources coming out over the next few weeks. But let's let's dive into this topic a little bit more about what does it take to effectively represent yourself because Sure, we're talking about how there's this opportunity, but it is some isn't something that you necessarily just jump into without a plan because you can really mess things up. And I used to work with a lawyer who would say to me, Oh, I love when people do their own legal work because it ends up creating a bigger, an even bigger problem, and they have to pay me more than they would have paid me if they just came to me from the beginning. And I didn't Classic. really like that point oh, of view. Classic. Classic. That's that's what he, you know, he would kind of giggle and be like, oh, I love when people do their own legal work. So it's not just something to jump into and think, oh, I'm going to do this just based on what I think I should do. It's better to have some information. And what that means is that you need to be willing to put the time in to learn. You're not just going to be able to show up in court. We talked about this a little bit last week and be like, okay, judge, figure this out for me. Right. You know, you're going to need to figure out how to navigate the system in a way that can at least set you up to get where you want. I can't guarantee you're going to get what you want, but at least get you on that path. So you need to be willing to do it. And, you know, Billy, what is your thought on that? Because it's not just like, oh, I decide I want to do this and it's done, right? Like there is some legwork you got to put in. Right. And not everyone is a good candidate. Not everyone can effectively represent themselves in court. If you are unable to articulate your position, you know, if you shut down under pressure or you are unable to stay composed, either because of anger or emotion, then you are not a great candidate. So there's a lot of prep work that goes into play. Now, let's say that right now you are somebody who maybe doesn't speak well. And so you think, no, that's not me. You can't get better at it. It's just that it's going to take some effort. In order to be an effective, self-representing person, you're going to have to put in time and effort to get good at this. Like I said, Julie and I have been doing this for more than 15 years, and we're still always working to get better. And there's still always things that we're learning. So you can't expect that you can just decide it and then make it happen. So the first point that you've got here is a willingness to learn family law and procedure. Now that's a massive undertaking. Right. And and the final part of that is as it applies to your case. I mean, yes. it is there is a lot going on, but if you have a more narrow case like a child support modification, like you talked about, mm-hmm. then there's less on the table to mm-hmm. wrap your brain around. But yeah, you need 
you're going to need to take some time to figure out, figure it out. Because if you don't understand the procedure, then you're not going to understand when it's time to exchange documents, when it's time to negotiate, when it's time to prepare for trial. And, and that's something that's really difficult for somebody representing themselves is understanding what each hearing's about. Right. So many people come to every hearing thinking every hearing's a trial. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the case. I mean, if you look at a divorce or really almost any type of family law case, the first hearing the court's going to set is something called a resolution management conference. At least in Yavapai County, that is like, four, you know, answers filed 40 days later, the, the resolution management conference is on the calendar. And it, it's a res, the, the court is managing the resolution of the case. There is no evidence presented. It's actually a very lackluster hearing. People get all, oh, the, all this stuff's going to happen. No, actually, really nothing's going to happen. We're just going to touch base and manage how this case is going to get resolved. So if you don't understand what the procedure is or what these different types of hearings are, you're going to be very confused. And that's about taking the time to learn and figure it out. And that's something that we're looking to provide in Win Without Law School, an avenue to make the law more user-friendly. Because if you just dive into it, it is very overwhelming. I remember going to law school and seeing the first you know, statute book for Arizona law. And it's this huge thing. And you know, you're used to reading books that are like fiction or nonfiction with chapters. And all of a sudden, you just have all these different statutes and and sections, and it's not user-friendly, it's not fun to read, it's not straightforward, and it can be really overwhelming. And so if you're just jumping into that reading through every statute, that's not going to do you much good. But with Win Without Law School, we're looking to take these types of cases and take you right to the law for that type of case so you can start seeing, okay, what's the type of evidence relevant here? What, What are some arguments I can make? Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the first steps that you can take here to determine, can I effectively represent myself in court on this particular case that I have right now is determining what is my case about right now? What is on the table? What are the issues on the table? And what is the law that relates to that issues? Because you've got two things you have to learn. You have to learn what does the law say about the issues in front of me? And then what, was, what must I procedurally do to effectively present my case? So post-decree or after your divorce is typically easier because there's fewer issues. If you're only dealing with a modification of legal decision-making and parenting time, that's, a, that's a, a, an amount of a case that you can probably learn on your own. If you are trying to get a divorce yourself, and you're litigating and you're fighting over business values and dividing 401ks and whether or not somebody wasted money on pornography and custody of your children and whether or not you want to relocate, that would that I think that would be impossible to effectively, effectively represent yourself in court with all of those issues and do a great job. So first question is, what is it that I am dealing with? The second thing that you have here is the ability to separate emotion from reason. Sure. Right. I mean, when you're, when you're in it, you're in it, you know, you don't have necessarily that outside perspective. You don't have that 
you know, for me, when I'm representing somebody, it's not my life. I'm able to have some distance from what's going on. And I'm able to give my clients some perspective and talk to them about the big picture and the law and, and bring some reason into the dialogue. But when you're actually going through it, sometimes the emotion of it is just so overwhelming and you could get so mad about something the other side did and you're not really understanding that, oh, actually there's no remedy for that thing in the court or the courts don't care about that thing or that's just going to slow our case down and cause a big diversion. Like there's there's a lot more to it than just getting your emotional needs recognized by the court. Really, that's not the role of the court at all. And this is one of the biggest challenges I generally face when I'm when I have a case against somebody representing themselves, is that I'm often having to get them to come out of this emotional state and move into a rational dialogue. And, and it's tough because they don't trust me. And so it takes a lot to get there sometimes, but you're going to need to figure out what is reasonable and start moving in that direction instead of just reacting to every trigger that comes up on a daily basis in your case. I do think it's, it, there's separating emotion from reason, which is difficult because it's your whole life. And, and these things are so, so, so important to you. And then there's also the fact that like the court has made most things no fault. Most things the court does not care about. But it seems very reasonable to you that if somebody did X, Y, and Z, that you should be able to go do A, B, and C. Like that might seem reasonable, which goes back to the first point about learning. You got to learn the law. You got to learn the procedures. And then you almost have to learn the culture as well of family court, of your particular judge, of what your, your outcomes might be. What is the range of outcomes that you might end up with so that you know how to ask for what you can actually get and how it might benefit you? The next thing that you have on here is collaborating with the right attorney. Now, I thought these people were representing themselves. I think that in order to have the most effective strategy representing yourself, you need to get some legal advice along the way to make sure you're on the right track to make sure you're doing things right, to get some insight on your particular judge. I really think if you're going to represent yourself, you should still have a budget set aside or that you start cultivating for a lawyer so that you can communicate with them, you know, maybe once every couple of months or something like that to just keep your case moving and help you move forward. In particular, at the outset, I think that's one of the best times to collaborate with a lawyer before you file, just to really solidify your case strategy. What am I asking for? Is it reasonable? Does the law support me? What are the facts that I really want to focus on? What's a settlement offer I could make to the other side? Those That would be a really useful hour with a lawyer to sit down, figure out your case strategy and formulate a settlement offer. Those are just some thoughts. It doesn't mean, you know, and then if things get more complicated, you have somebody you're already working with. If you did need to bring them on on a limited basis or, or for a particular hearing, or it's somebody you can touch base with throughout the case to help you get a final resolution in, in place. Yeah. And there's more options now than ever before. Arizona has licensed legal paraprofessionals. 
These are paralegals who have been licensed and certified by the Supreme Court of Arizona to practice law. That is a whole nother avenue that's opened up to people in addition to certified legal doctor preparers who are also very, very useful things and then limited scope legal services. So just so many options to get legal support. And then there's things like joining support groups or joining Win Without Law School and trying out your arguments. That's not legal advice, but you're going to get feedback. So there's a lot of options to make you more effective. You should not truly DIY when you have all this support around you that can help you be better. Yeah, I think you're going to have a much more frustrating process if you're trying to just do it all yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's hard enough as it is. Take these avenues to make it a little bit easier for yourself. But like we talked about before, if you're going to collaborate with a lawyer on this more limited scope basis, make sure you're collaborating with the light, the right lawyer who's mm -hmm. used to working in that framework mm -hmm. because they will be the ones who are best at empowering you to do it yourself and giving you guides and, you know, maybe writing out a checklist for you to follow or something like that. Whereas if you're working with somebody who thinks, no, people can't represent themselves effectively and they have to do everything through a lawyer, that person just isn't going to have the mindset to be thinking, oh, how can I empower this person? They just won't be coming from that point of view. So right, right. team up with the right person. Right. I totally agree. Now, there are a ton of questions coming in on oh, okay. the TikTok live feed. And I just want to let you know, I see you and we are going to do that. We are going to get to open Q&A. We're just not there quite yet. The next thing we're going to talk about is negotiation skills. You have to have negotiation skills to effectively represent yourself in court. How can people learn those? It, well, when without law school, that is something that we are definitely going to teach because it is so important. So that's one resource. You need negotiation skills because you don't want to leave everything to the judge. Okay. In fact, your goal is going to be to resolve as many issues as possible and ideally your entire case before going to any sort of trial. You don't want to leave the judge. You don't want to leave it up to the judge because you just don't know what the judge is going to do. And maybe the judge will rule in your favor, maybe not. You just, by having a set outcome that's been agreed upon, you have a certain outcome, you've, you've contributed to that, you've been a player in it. And then it's also establishing some really good skills, especially if you're co-parenting to keep negotiating and reaching agreements in the future. So there's, there's a really nice foundation there too. But oftentimes when you're representing yourself, you're often dealing with the other side who's representing themselves as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they have an attorney, but most often when a problem arises, you know, there's a, there's a discussion between the two parents or the two spouses. So number one, you really need to be in alignment with why you're having this discussion. What's your goal? Do you have a proposal? What are the terms? Are you clear about what the terms are? Have you written them down? These are going to be important because if you're just going in with no real framework into a, a discussion, you're likely going to fall into this blame game dynamic where instead of making any progress, you and your co-parent or you and your spouse are fighting about some drama thing that happened in your relationship at some point. And there's, this is your fault. We wouldn't have this problem if you did that. And 
we should with this. It, it's just, it's like coming back to blaming who's to who's or figuring out who's to blame instead of coming up with a constructive resolution. So with negotiations, that's something when you're coming into this dialogue, you should have a plan, either an offer or a set of questions you're going to be asking to cultivate a dialogue that can lead to a discussion. Oftentimes, nobody wants to be told what to do. So if you have this whole plan and then you come in and you're like, and then we're going to do this and then you're going to do that and then we're going to do this. Okay. And the other side's like, forget you, like get out of here. I don't, I don't want to do anything you say. So sometimes you need to think about this. Like how is the other side going to perceive this? And rather than me making the suggestion, what if I ask a question? Well, what would you like to do for parenting time? What's your proposal? So you really need to sit down and think about the negotiation. And then one final tip, and we talked about this recently, is not just giving up at no. Mm-hmm. If you get an initial no from the other side, I encourage you to ask questions, ask for a counteroffer. Mm-hmm. Like, why no? What chart is no? Is there anything in there that they're in agreement with? And if they just say, no, the whole thing sucks, I don't like any of it, well, then can, can they make an offer? Okay, you don't like my offer? then I would like one from you. Can you give me one in three days? You know, put a deadline on it to keep things moving. So negotiation skills don't necessarily come naturally. It's something that you do need to spend some time with. And this is something that Billy and I have a lot of useful tips on to help people. I like to work behind the scenes sometimes. Sometimes I'll empower my clients with stuff to say to the other side, because once the lawyer gets involved, it can ruin the whole dynamic. And so sometimes it's really helpful for the parent or the spouse to be empowered to go into that discussion. And then there can be a feeling of an equal playing field, which can facilitate better communication. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that a lot. I also think sometimes, you know, my favorite negotiation tools don't come from lawyers. They come from psychology books. So some of my favorites are Influence by Robert Cialdini, or Cialdini is how you pronounce it, and Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. Great, great, great books that can help you with some negotiation skills. And negotiation skills at their finest are about asking questions, determining what's important to the other party, and then figuring out how to give them what they want. So that is a different mind frame than most of us go into negotiation with, but that is the mind frame that will help you get the best outcome for yourself. Because if you understand what they want and figure out a way to give it to them, you can usually get your own needs met at the same time. And then the other thing that I really like to do is I like to draft proposed parenting plans that are comprehensive very, very thorough. Like for instance, I have a mom that I'm working with right now. We're going into mediation and she really wants final decision-making. Dad has blocked her ability to get her kids counseling. She already lives out of state with her kids. She she wants final decision-making. Dad's a jerk. I wrote a proposed parenting plan that gives them joint legal decision-making, but gives each of them the ability to make decisions after discussion in their own respective jurisdictions. What does that do? (laughs) That gives mom de facto final decision-making about school and medical and counselors where she lives. 
So, but I did it, you know, in a way that did not make him feel like he was losing. So it's all, to me, negotiation is so much more about psychology than getting quick wins or pulling one over on somebody. It's it's truly about creating win-wins while thinking about the psychology of where each parent is coming from. Yeah, and I think women in particular can be really good at that, you know, sitting down and analyzing the different aspects of the personalities and walking that line and figuring that out. And those are great points. <laughs> there is so much psychology to it. Right. And another thing I really like to do that a lot of self-represented parties don't necessarily think about is identifying points of leverage. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're flexible on child support and you know that there's a range you're willing to pay or accept, mm-hmm. like some people are like, oh, whatever. Yeah, it's just that. And it's like, no, that's not whatever. That is a great negotiating tool you've got right there. And so right. that's another part of the analysis before you go into the negotiation is really identifying those points of leverage and what your ranges are of what you're willing to negotiate with, because that can give you a lot of power in the discussion. Mm -hmm. Totally. Absolutely agree. I've got a sick kid at home. I have to step out and help him with homework, but the next topic, either Sarah can ask you questions or the next topic that we've got on is trial skills. So do you mind taking over for a minute? Yeah, no problem. So obviously we have our new trial skills course, but in handling a family law case, I always like to take a two-pronged approach. There's the trying to settle it and and working through the negotiation, but then there's preparing for trial in the background so that if the negotiations fall through or you don't reach an agreement on every issue, you're still ready to go to trial. And by being ready for trial, that also can give you some leverage in the negotiation. So preparing for trial, knowing what to do, and then putting on a good trial obviously are going to be key skills to have in effectively representing yourself. And that's something that Billy and I are teaching in the course. Also, some of the videos have been released on the Modern Law YouTube page. So you can also go there to see some of these trial skills videos. Also, a couple of final points are just having patience and faith, you know, understanding that it's going to be a challenging process. It's going to be even a bit more confusing trying to navigate it by yourself. So having patience and faith in yourself. And then having the ability to put your case into a compelling story and tell the judge your story. Those are my final points. You know, there's so many things that happen in a case. There's so many things that happen, you know, in in your life and in your marriage or or with your co-parent. And you really got to be able to distill that down to some key points and explain your story to the judge. Otherwise, it, you could just end up telling a story that's very confusing that doesn't really, you know, land with the judge. All right. With that said, Sarah, why don't we jump into some of the Q and A? Oh, you're on mute. I don't hear you. No. Okay. Well, I think it's just me for now. Sarah's back. I'm back. There we go. Now I can hear you. All right. Let's see what questions do we have. What is the Arizona definition of child abandonment? Okay. So first, before we jump into this abandonment question, I just want to quickly say 
that by answering these questions, there's no attorney-client privilege that comes into place. This isn't legal advice. I'd have to sit down with you and get your exact situation. So this is just general legal information. And I'm licensed to practice law here in Arizona. So those are just some little disclaimers. Okay, abandonment. So, I mean, I would have to grab my book, you know, to look up the actual definition. I don't have it memorized or anything. But it it generally comes up in Title Eight, which has to do with children. And this is where DCS, formerly known as CPS, will come in and file a case citing to abandonment, citing to neglect. So it can come up in that context. The other context could just be in, in terms of parenting time or child support. So as far as parenting time, you know, the, the court doesn't necessarily look at abandonment, but it would more be, are you not exercising your parenting time? And does that merit changing it? Does that merit modifying the parenting time because one parent is exercising their time? That could be an argument. As far as child support goes, some people argue, oh, well, look, he's not exercising any parenting time. Either I don't even want him to pay child support, just nothing, he or she, or, you know, they should have to pay more child support because they're not exercising time. But it's not necessarily in terms of abandonment. I don't know, Billy, it was just a general question about what is the definition of abandonment. Hmm. Okay. Well, legally, it doesn't come up in family law. It's there's so no in none of the family law statutes in family court do they mention abandonment. In the termination of parental rights statutes, it does. That's when abandonment in its legal form has has any sort of importance. So, and why is that important? It's important because let's say that you've been abandoned and your child has been abandoned. It's not that that's not important to family court. It is. The facts surrounding the abandonment are important. But since abandonment itself is not in any of the statutes, is not a best interest factor, is not something that a judge needs to make a finding about, we don't want to argue abandonment. We want to argue the facts that meet the statute in question. And this is what's, I think, so challenging about family law. Your story matters. Everything that has happened to you matters, but it has to be framed within the correct statute that is in front of the judge at the time, which goes back to our very first point. You have to learn what applies to your case. So that's a, a long-winded say way of answering your abandonment question. Really, it becomes more about how to effectively represent yourself and understand this system that you have to work within. So did we already talk about trial skills? Yes. Did we already talk about patience and faith? Yeah, we were moving into the Q&A. Oh, great. We're done. Great. Q&A. We have so many. What's the next question? I want to know what other way can I find or serve my child's father? I want full custody of my daughter and I want to change her last name. Okay. So find or serve or find and serve? Find or serve. I'm assuming it was, I'm assuming both. Okay. So if you need to find the person, you can hire a private investigator to try to locate some, you know, last known address, things like that. 
This goes to the rule of procedure on service. And the in, it, it's pretty detailed, but essentially your case would get filed. And once your case is filed, that kicks off. I think it's 120 days you have to complete service. It's either 90 or 120. So within that time, you've got to find him and serve him. And so this is where you have to start engaging in due diligence to try to find him. So you can't just be like, oh, I don't know where he is. Like you need to show, okay, I contacted this person. I hired a private investigator. I sent this notice to the last address I had for him. I sent him a text message to the last number I had. I sent an email to the last email. I tried. Like you have to show serious efforts to try to find this person and serve them with the papers. And then if through all those efforts, you still aren't able to show them, you can ask the court to allow you to do what's called alternative service, but you need to file a motion and you need to detail all the due diligent efforts you took and then get a court order to do alternative service, which can be publishing in a local newspaper or I've done social media, I've done email, I've done text, you know, depending on what the situation is. So there are a lot of options for alternative service. So that's if you just can't find him. If you can, if you do locate him, then you can, if you're, if you're in communication, you can ask him to sign an acceptance of service. You need a notary present. That can be kind of difficult depending on if you, I mean, it sounds like you have no communication. So that might not be a viable option. If you have a good address and they're signing for mail, you can do certified mail. They sign the green card, return it. That's service or you hire a process server. To be a sheriff deputy, you can be a private process server to go to that their work or their home and serve them, and then the service is complete. That I mean, all of that can be challenging. Definitely need to pay attention to the rules. Potentially work with a lawyer or some sort of community legal services. If you're receiving. Welfare benefits, you may be able to get assistance from the attorney general's office, depending on the child support situation and welfare benefits. So that's a couple of options. As far as your other requests of the things that you want from the court, a lot of that is going to depend on whether or not he ultimately participates in the case. If he doesn't and you serve him, you can get a default order, which maybe you can get all the things you're asking for on default. But if he participates in the case, then you'll either need to reach an agreement with him or win a trial. So it'll just depend on how that unfolds. Billy, your thoughts? Well, I think you covered a lot of it. The, the only thing that I might do is first ask, what do you want? Is, are you trying to change your child's name? Is that really the primary purpose? Because that's a different action than asking for sole custody. You can file for a name change separate from a family court action. So I always think the best thing to do is figure out what's your end goal and then work backwards. But I loved everything you said about service. There are many, many ways to serve people. Really, many, many, many ways. And if you can't find them, the courts are usually in my experience in Maricopa County, pretty open to allowing alternative service, which might be through Instagram or Facebook or text or whatever. All right, let's do another question. 
Next question. If my case is going to court and I don't feel prepared, is there a cost to cancel date? Mm. So you can't always cancel your court date. And your judge might get a little upset if you say, I don't feel ready as your excuse, especially if your trial's been set for several months. And um, if Matt likely won't pass. You know, so so if you asked for the, if you filed the petition, then it's even like, it's even more of a problem. So you, you, you got to get prepared most likely. But with that being said, judges also do grant continuances. And if you want to file a motion to continue, that's not canceling a trial. It's asking for more time. If you can figure out a way to blame the other party, <laughs> hey, I haven't gotten the discovery I asked for or the Rule 49 disclosures weren't complete, that would be a better way to say it than to say I don't feel prepared. Yeah, you definitely need to have a better reason if you really want to win on that continuance request. And I would get that in it as soon as possible, too. You're not going to want to wait until the last minute. And I'd reach out to the other side, too, and ask them, what's your position on this? Are you in agreement? Do you need more time, too? Because if you can have it be a stipulated request where you're jointly asking, the judge is more inclined to grant it. Also, the rule actually says you're supposed to reach out to the other side and put their position in, whether they agree or disagree. They can always do an additional response explaining their position, but the rule does want you to reach out to the other side and ask their position on your motion to continue before you file, file it. All right, next question. What's a reasonable amount of time for an attorney to respond to any questions or processes? I'm assuming to their client. You know, I would say one to two days would be a reasonable amount of time. Some law offices make a promise about how quickly they'll respond. Obviously, you need to be cognizant of holidays, weekends, things like that. Or if you're getting an auto response saying your attorney's on vacation or something, you know, I mean, obviously there's some factors to consider. But I'd say a day or two and, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with a nice little reminder nudge. Hey, I sent you this message. I haven't gotten a response. You know, when do I, when can I expect to hear back from you? Whether it's your attorney or you're representing yourself and you're contacting your opposing party's attorney, you can always do a friendly follow-up and confirm they got your message. What if the other party is filing custody for their disagreement on how you parent? Oh, so you're defending, essentially. What if the... Yep. So the other side is claiming that you're doing something with your parenting that justifies modifying the parenting plan. That's what it sounds like, either parenting plan or decision-making. So, yeah, so you're, in, you're on the defense, and you need to start building a defense, so... One of the first things I like to do is go through the petition and write out bullet points of what are their allegations. Like maybe there's three things that they're accusing you of. You, you don't get the kids' teeth brushed. You get them to school late and their homework's not done. Okay, let's say those are the three things. I would write those out and then I would be looking to Either A, if it's true that I haven't done that great on those things, I would be looking to correct it immediately. Or B, if it's a lie that I haven't done those things, 
I would be looking to show, no, that's not true by making a log of every time we brush teeth together and getting the kids attendance record at school and getting their report cards and, you know, getting that evidence that's going to contradict the allegation. And if that, like I said, if the allegation is true, your best thing is to correct it. Because if you can, by the time you get to court, which could be several months from now, if you've now been correcting this issue for several months, the other side's case is pretty weak. <laughs> so those are my thoughts. But yeah, you're, you can do a counter petition. If you have claims against the other side, you can do a counter petition against them and have everything heard together. Sometimes that's an effective strategy, but mostly you're looking to rebut or overcome the allegations. Billy? Yeah, you, you, so I really suggest in this case, so let the, this, what this person said is they filed a petition saying they don't like my parenting. Now I can tell based on the wording of your question, you don't think this is a big deal, but I don't know if the judge will think it's a big deal or not because it depends on what it is. And sometimes my clients might not think it's a big deal and judges do think it's a big deal. If you post this specifically in our Decode Your Divorce group, there are a ton of people who have experience in the local courthouse. Lots of people who have had lots of experience will be able to tell you, oh, judges don't like that, or that's not a big deal. The first thing you need to figure out is, is what they're accusing you of a big deal or not? And it might be. It, let's say that you're allowing your five-year-old daughter to sleep in the same bed with her 12-year-old stepson, and you don't think this is a big deal. A judge might very well think that that's a very big deal. Or, so it really depends on what they're accusing you of. If it's truly nothing, you might be able to file a motion to dismiss. So, unfortunately, there are times when lawyers come in really handy. <laughs> and and they can help set you a framework that you can then represent yourself within much more effectively if you have that knowledge. Great. We have a couple mediation questions. The first one is, I have a question. My mediation keeps getting rescheduled. Is this a bad thing? I mean, hard to know. That's that's pretty broad. In my experience, you know, I, I like to look at delays as being favorable. I mean, I, you just don't know, but the delay is the delay. If there's nothing you can do, I'd like to look at that as, okay, maybe this is favorable. Maybe there's some extra terms that we hadn't talked about or, or there's some event that is going to unfold that, you know, I'll look back and be like, Oh, I'm so glad that there was this delay. But I mean, that's a pretty broad question. I, I have no idea if in the end that's favorable in this particular questioner's situation or not. What are some reasons that a mediation would be delayed? If the mediator got sick or the other side had some sort of delay or maybe a scheduling conflict came up for somebody involved. Maybe somebody didn't make their payment on time. And mm -hmm. so there was a delay until the full payments received. Okay. My mediation is coming up. What do I need to prepare for? So I like to come up with a, you know, bullet points of what my, requested outcome is, or, or at least the ranges of an outcome for each issue that I am happy with. And if possible, if I could formulate that into an offer, 
because, you know, somebody needs to make the first offer at a mediation. And so you potentially could be ready with that. But I would be thinking about each issue, what your requested outcome is. And then also, you know, if you know there's something that's really big to on the other side, like something about the parenting plan and they just won't let it go, I would prepare a little more on those types of issues because that's probably what a lot of the focus of the mediation will be on. Any thoughts, Billy? I think that you did a great job. What I find with my clients is that before mediation, and one of the questions that here on TikTok is, do attorneys go to mediation with you? They absolutely can, or you can go by yourself. There are a lot of different ways that you can do mediation. If your issues are very complicated, then it's usually a good idea to have a lawyer with you. If they're not, then it might be a waste of time to have a lawyer go with you. Uh, But what I really like to do with my clients is help them change their mindset. So when we go into court, we're arguing a position. And we talked a little bit about how to tell your story to the judge and how to argue your case. Our job is to advocate for you in court and to argue on your behalf to help convince the judge that you're right. That's the way court's set up. Mediation is not set up that way. Mediation is truly about what can I live with? What is an outcome that would serve me and my family moving forward? So for me, it's really about mindset. Sometimes I have people who want to do arbitration and mediation at once. Arbitration is when you allow a private person to act as the judge and make a decision on your behalf. I love arbitration. I think it's great, but I think it's very difficult to have a mindset of argument and advocacy and settlement and negotiation. So I really like to separate them. Okay. I think I saw a lot here. We have tons of questions. Here's a good one. What can I do if the other parent has been holding the child and encouraging the child not to see the other parent? Yeah, and it's it's a tough situation. So there was withholding and discouraging. Are those the two concerns? Yes. Okay. So as far as withholding the child, you know, do you have a parenting plan? Is that a violation of the plan? Enforcing it that could correct that issue. If if you just have an agreement between the two of you, it's not a court order then maybe it's time to get one so that there is an actual order in place that could be enforced. And so you're not so much at the mercy of the other co-parent. As far as what the other co-parent is saying to the child, that's a bit more complicated. Number one, proving what's said when you're not there is nearly impossible because the other side can just deny it. And so going in and saying, you're doing this, you're doing that. And then they say, no, you're just kind of stuck. At that point, what I like to do is focus on the child. Okay. So if this is happening, obviously that's going to be creating confusion for the child, right? And also creating some problematic patterns for the child, too. This like people pleasing and against somebody you love, like very, very difficult psychological stuff. So I would be looking to get some sort of counseling for the kid. And then maybe the counselor can talk to the other parent about this stuff and how it's impacting the child. Or maybe those counseling records are then used to seek a modification down the road. But 
you need to try to get it out of just this he said, she said between mom and dad because you're kind of stuck without going anywhere. And then the child is just suffering. So I prefer to try to get the child some sort of help. What are your thoughts, Billy? I agree. I think these are the hardest cases. I've said this before, and I've got, we've got clients in both positions where they are parents that feel and are experiencing alienation. And then the parent that is, that the judge has determined is alienating and therefore has taken the children away from them. Either way is heartbreaking. So to me, what you've got is a very, very unhealthy situation that is going to be so bad for your children. And this is fundamentally about the relationship between parents and anything you can do to improve that. So I love the idea of getting your children in counseling, but I also think that co-parenting counseling would be highly effective in these situations, if at all possible. Many times in these situations, one parent might have a personality disorder, might be dealing with a narcissistic personality disorder or a borderline personality disorder. And that is so hard on kids. Yeah. One mm-hmm. other thing to be cognizant of is, you know, depending on the age of your child that children do manipulate. And so, you know, you also have to take it with a grain of salt and really try to address the situation. I wouldn't just hear my kids say that and fly off the handle. You know, you kind of need to, okay, what was really said? What was the context? What's going on here? And can you talk to your co-parent about it in an effective way outside of the ears of your child? As a first step, suggest the counseling. But really, it's if you have somebody who is dead set on making your child hate you, it's, it's tough and it's sad. And I don't have an immediate resolution for that situation. But one thing you can do is understand your children and understand their co-parent, your co-parent, and understand when you're being manipulated. Like you, I, I, I have four kids and they go back and forth and I have an ex and I know him. So if my kids say something complaining about their dad, I usually know, I usually understand what that means. And I can either feed into it or I can deal with it, you know, as if we lived in the same house. Because parents who live in the same house have disagreements. And kids pray mom and dad off of each other when parents live in the same house. You, for the sake of your children's normalcy and development, Like, if you can think about it in the same way, where dad and I, we may not live in the same house, or mom and I, we may not live in the same house. We are the parents, and our children will try to play us. And and if it's at all possible to be on the same page, like, figure out a way to do it. And you know what else that does is it offers your kids such an amazing sense of security and stability that they've lost now that their parents live in different houses. And any time I can say to my kids, you know, your dad and I are really, we've talked about this and we really feel like it just, you can see like the relief on their face. So just because you're not in the same house and you don't love each other romantically anymore, doesn't mean you can't figure out a way on key issues to get aligned. Like if you can, I really feel like it offers real value to your children. I loved that. That was amazing. 
Thanks. Do we want to do another question or two? You know, I have time. We got started a little late. Julie, if you have to go, I totally get it. I've had a few more minutes. Okay. Let's do a couple more questions because we've got a ton. <laughs> right. I like this one. Do judges look at us as incompetent when we do go in representing ourselves? In a way, yes. Yeah. I mean, they recognize that you're self-represented, but you have to understand that you also have an enormous benefit and an advantage in that position because the judges usually want to help you. Yeah. Sometimes they bend over backwards to help you. Sometimes it could be very frustrating as a lawyer to see the yeah. judge helping the self-represented party so much. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they might think that you're incompetent, but they want to help you. And so you've got to remember that. And try to utilize that to your advantage the best you can. I've heard some judges say they prefer it when people are self-represented because then they get to run their courtroom the way they want to without the lawyers, you know, advocating on behalf of their clients. They might feel like they're in a better position to determine the truth. So, you know, the I think the judge is only going to think you're incompetent if you show up unprepared and incompetent and and you you do have the ability to learn what is this hearing about what is this case about and show up and earn the respect of your judge without a doubt i think what advice would you have for somebody who's representing themselves and the opposing party does have counsel this is very intimidating i'm sure so i encourage you to See that you have more power in this situation than it feels like you do. Mm-hmm. Because you can be a real thorn in the side of this lawyer. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could be a thorn in your side as well. But if you can actually establish a good dialogue with this lawyer, it, they can actually help you in ways because they can draft the paperwork. Like they can do some of the heavy lifting that can help move things forward. So obviously it's going to depend on what lawyers on the other side, some people are nicer than others, but that is something I would be exploring from the get-go. I would be looking to set a phone call with this person. We may talk for five, 10 minutes. It's probably not going to be a long call, but just kind of feeling this person out. Hey, what's it going to take to resolve this? You know, where do you, you know, just kind of seeing what, what paperwork do you need? How can we work together? And then you're going to know right away, is this going to be a relationship where I'm going to be able to advocate for myself in a strong way? Or is this somebody who's just going to make this really, really difficult? Um, it, it is a tough road, but with the right lawyer on the other side, it actually can be a smoother experience. And again, I think your biggest advantage is to figure out what your case goals are. Because if you're clear on where you're trying to get, then you can actually start having some discussions to potentially get there. But if you don't know and you're just scared, then no progress is being made. Let's just do one final question. So we're getting a lot of questions about what to do if you don't agree with the judge's orders. So maybe we'll just combine them. Mm. Yeah, this is a big deal. So you get the judge's order. What do you do? There's a lot of legal analysis that has to go on right now, which is hard if you're representing yourself. First, you need to determine, 
is the ruling that I got an actual ruling or do I just don't like something that he or she said? Like, did it make it into the ruling is the first question. Because if it didn't make it in the ruling, it's not an order. It doesn't mean that they might not remember it and come back to it and be mad at you. But like, if it's not, if it's not in the order, it's not an order. If it's a temporary order, you sort of have to live with it for now. You don't have a lot of options, but you can determine what don't I like about it. Is it a clerical error? Is it a mistake? Do I, it does it not reflect the record and I need to have the record fixed? Did they misunderstand something? I mean, I think 10 out of 10 times you're not happy with the judge's ruling with to some extent. Yeah. And then you need to determine like, is it appealable? Do I, do I do a motion to reconsider? Do I ask for clarification? Like, what do you think, Julie? Yeah. I think number one is reading the order and making a list. What Mm -hmm. exactly is the problem here? Mm -hmm. And then of those things on the list, is it a typo? Mm -hmm. Is it, they named the parties wrong. Like I've seen the judge flip petitioner and respondent and needed to correct that. So like the order actually made sense. Yeah. So is it something like that where just the judge made a, a clerical error, like you said, a typo? Because then you can do what's called a motion to correct and look to correct that typo or that clerical error mistake. But is it, on the flip side, is it something about the substance? Is it that the judge ordered joint decision making and you think soul is better? Or the judge issued a, a parenting plan you don't like? The, that's more substantive. And then that runs into a more complicated analysis. There is the option for a motion for reconsideration. It's really a, a roll of the dice. I sometimes have success with those. Sometimes don't. You just don't know. And I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to give advice on such a broad issue but, like that. I mean, really, yeah. you need to see what the order is, see exactly mm-hmm. what is being objected to, to give better options, but not all orders can be changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Some orders you need to wait a year or so to even ask to change. Mm -hmm. Um, Some stuff you need to appeal to potentially get a change. It's just, that's a real tough one. Which is why Julie and I are both such fans of negotiated outcomes, even imperfect negotiated outcomes is lower risk than going in front of a judge. It's really, really, really risky to take your case in front of a judge, even though what we're doing is teaching you how to represent yourself. <laughs> so I think that's that's it for our live today. The recording will be available on our Decode Your Divorce page and also in Win Without Law School's membership area. Make sure to head over to winwithoutlawschool.com and get access to all of the materials that you're going to need to really learn how to represent yourself. Thanks so much for listening to the Modern Divorce Podcast. Remember, anything you've heard today or anything you read online is not the replacement 
for actual consultation with an attorney and does not create an attorney-client relationship. Even if you called in and we spoke to you, you are anonymous and we don't have your details and you have not become a client of Modern Law. However, we would love to speak with you or you should seek out the advice of legal counsel or counseling or any other expert near you. And if you have an idea for a show topic or you need to speak with an attorney in Arizona, you can reach me at info, I-N-F-O, at mymodernlaw.com.